Do the righteous suffer? What can a believer say, much less do, in seasons of pain and in a whirlwind of weariness? In dramatic and disturbing fashion, the book of Job explores this difficult question. This book gives an account of a man who is tested by God in suffering. He engages in extended dialogue with several companions about the character of God and the nature of suffering, and then hears God answer out of a whirlwind. The book of Job opens by providing the basic historical setting for the subsequent dialogue. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The setting of the book seems to be from a time much like the historical setting of the account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis. As part of the writings in the Hebrew Bible, Job Job begins with a brief narrative framework centered on a wide-ranging theological examination of the fear of the Lord, the presence of the Lord in suffering, and whether suffering is always or ever the result of divine judgment. The book of Job does this primarily through back-and-forth dialogue between Job and the other main figures in the account. As the beginning of the book continues, the narrator recounts, On another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. To present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answers the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replies. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself as he sat among the ashes. His wife replied to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. The rest of the book explores in great length the patterns of response that Job and his friends articulate and grapple with. Their lengthy conversations expose many of the core human responses both to the idea of justice and the nature of suffering. In Psalm 26, David shapes a poetic reflection on the ideal worshiper. Here we see the high aspirations of one who walks in covenant relationship with the Lord. We also see the desire that the Lord would vindicate the worshiper who has devoted their life to the way of righteousness. David writes, Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord, and I have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life, 
deliver me and be merciful to me. He ends the psalm by declaring, My feet stand on level ground, and the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. These texts explore the meaning of suffering in light of obedience. If the righteous suffer, it will be the Lord that will need to vindicate them. The Lord is ever-present in these texts, either in the difficult testing of the believer or the difficult timing of the Lord's deliverance. In each case, the suffering believer must endure in the face of unexplained and starkly inexplicable distance and pain. In Job and Psalm 26, both Job and David grapple with the reality of unjust suffering. In both cases, God is not blamed but beseeched. In lodging their complaint, Job and the psalmist nevertheless cry out to the Lord, convinced of his goodness in spite of pain and loss that has no discernible rhyme or reason. One of the great mysteries of the gospel is that in the incarnation, Jesus himself suffers. One who is not only righteous in his actions, but righteousness itself. The writer of Hebrews amplifies this mystery when he says in Hebrews 5, that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who would obey him. In the New Testament reading for this week, the writer of Hebrews draws out the theologic of the Incarnation by speaking of the Son as being above the angels and then below the angels. One of the riddles of Hebrews 1 is why so much talk about angels. One of the most profound answers to this textual question is to observe that the author spends so much time asserting that the Son is above the angels in every way because he's about to say that the Son was, for a little while, below the angels. To avoid any misunderstanding about the nature of the Incarnation, the writer makes it stunningly clear that the one who walks among us below the angels as a man, surrounded by suffering and subject to death, is the very one who is above the angels by nature and who has an equal and intimate relationship with the Father himself from all eternity. With this cosmic frame in view, we can feel the full effect of the writer's presentation of redemptive history in his opening words and his explanation of the Incarnation in chapter 2. The author writes, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In the rest of chapter 1, the writer gives a series of comparisons and contrasts between what God says of the Son and what he says of the angels. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? After a brief ex- word of exhortation in chapter two, the first four verses of chapter 2, the author continues by picking up this line after demonstrating that this son, who is the exact imprint of God's nature, who was above the angels in every way, has come below the angels. Verse 5 of chapter 2, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, from Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man? that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author reflects, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Job and Psalm 29 give us alternate angles that allow us a glimpse into what it looks like to endure suffering in light of divine reality, even when it's confusing. The opening and exposition of Hebrews shows us the ultimate hope of those who suffer. We have a Savior who suffers with us and on our behalf. He genuinely takes on a human nature and experiences pain, experiences betrayal, and experiences death for us and for our salvation. Because of who he is as Son in eternity and what he does among us in incarnation, we too can have life with the one and only God. Our suffering is real as anything else we have experienced. Our salvation is real as anything we could have hoped for. In the gospel, we see the son where he's not supposed to be, among the sons, lower than the angels, surrounded by sin, suffering, and paradise lost. Through his atoning work, he brings those sons and daughters where they're not supposed to be, in the presence of God himself, surrounded by glory, love, and paradise restored. At great cost. Praise the Lord for his grace. Music